if these two chapters that we, we were looking at, chapters 8 and 9, were a, a mountain that Matthew is taking us on a hike up to show us the, the, uh, the, 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 the grandeur of Jesus' actions that confirmed his word, then, then what we've come to this week is the summit. It's the, the pinnacle. Now, we still are going to come down back off the mountain, but, but Matthew has been presenting Jesus as God, showing how he not only said he was, but that his actions proved it in, in healing people physically and speaking a word and people are healed across town and uh, then speaking and the storms, the weather listens to him and now saying that your sins are forgiven and it being done so. Now, now Matthew is focused like a laser on this goal of presenting Jesus as God. And so Matthew cuts out a lot of the detail that some of the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke in particular, thankfully add in about this story. So what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, this, these first eight verses in Matthew and then look also at Mark uh, to find some more information about this rather famous account. Let's read Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 to 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now hold that place there and turn over to Mark chapter 2. Again, starting with the first verse of the chapter. Fill in some of the information. His hometown is Capernaum, we find. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Jesus said is. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. The rest of it goes on in similar form to Matthew. The grass withers and the flower falls, but this God's word will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts, the thoughts that you know can perceive, be not only pleasing to you, but helpful for us. Clear away our doubt, clear away our skepticism, 
answer our question and give us reason to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine for yourself being in this small house. The houses of the time are considerably smaller than our houses, perhaps a room that is only a quarter of the size of this. If it was a larger house, maybe 20, 30 people are crowded in here to hear Jesus teaching. Jesus is teaching and many others have come as well. And so flowing out through the door, just being, hoping to be able to catch a, a, a little bit of what he says, they're listening attentively and paying attention inside. Maybe even they're standing outside of the windows and listening in to, to Jesus And so this group of four men carrying their friend on a, 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 a mat or a, a stretcher connected, rigged up with ropes, come to bring uh, this man to Jesus for healing, knowing that Jesus had healed probably in the same exact house just recently and that he was able to heal. They find the crowd and they can't get in. But being resourceful, they continue to look around for ways to get into the house and seeing none, they see a staircase on the side of the house that goes up to a roof that's used as a sitting area for the family in the cool of the evening with a railing around it. And so they walk up the staircase. And seeing no other way to get him in, they begin to pull away the roofing material. And now you're in the house and you start to feel a little bit of dust or debris fall down on you and see a little bit of dust start to gather in the room and you look up and you see some more dust and then a little bit of light coming through the top of the ceiling. And then a little bit more light and then a face peer down and look in. From above, And they continue to peel away the ceiling and everybody in this already crowded house moves to the edges of the house to make room for the debris that's falling so it doesn't fall on them. And then this big opening of light that's there begins to be eclipsed like a lunar eclipse covering the sun by the paralytic's mat that's gradually coming over the opening and being let down by ropes right there in the presence of Jesus. Now Jesus, not being one to waste an opportunity, realizes that not only does this paralytic have his attention, he has the attention of everybody in the room. Not only does the paralytic have the attention of everyone in the room, he has the potential to have the attention of many more in many rooms, like ours here today and other rooms throughout history, as they hear the account of this story and can imagine these vivid details and the the activity and the amazement and the thoughts of the many people. I wonder if he's going to repair this roof. (laughs) Jesus doesn't waste the opportunity, the attention that this man has. Rather, he turns it not just to heal the paralytic, but to teach all of those who are there and all of us who are here and many others throughout history. He uses this man to teach the crowd something about who he is and about what God's forgiveness means. 
Now let me stop here and tell you where I'm going to go with this. At first, I want to just tell you something about what this forgiveness is. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and it causes an uproar in the crowd. And then he says, which is easier? And it raises the question, which is easier? So let's look first at that. And then second, I want us to look at the various people who have gathered around and who are mentioned in this story. Because like a good murder mystery genre that I love, not because of the murder or the gruesomeness, but because of the way it probes into the individuals who may be gathered around the suspects, and you learn something about each of them. We know something a fair bit about each of the the suspects in in this room. We know something about the people who, these four men who brought this man to Jesus. We know something about this crowd that's gathered around and about the scribes that are a part part of the crowd. We know perhaps a little bit about the man himself. And as we look at each of those, we may be able to learn something about ourselves. Not may, we we should learn something about ourselves. In fact, that's the way we should read these stories. We can always identify in these types of stories places where we, whether it's, Uh, We are prone to be like those people. So let's start off with with what it means uh, to be forgiven. Everybody's eyes are on this man. Jesus recognizing that everybody's eyes are on him says something that would have captured everybody else's attention. Rather than stretch out his hand and say, your faith has made you well. Now go, pick up your mat and walk home. A comment that probably would not have even been noted in history if he had made it. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And all the eyes in the room turn back to Jesus. Did he say what I think he said? Why is this such a startling statement? I mean, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, I forgive you, or is it easier to say, I heal you? I mean, which is easier to say? Well, both are pretty easy to say. I just said them. Pretty easy to say it. You could say it. Obviously, Jesus isn't just communicating... uh, speaking, he's wanting to take it a step further. And perhaps another question that he's asking, which is easier to prove? Which is easier to prove? And then still further, the real question at hand is, which is easier to do? You may say, well, I've forgiven a lot of people. I think everybody in here has probably forgiven somebody before. But we need to bear in mind that this man probably, most likely, has never met Jesus, has never done anything directly to Jesus in his human life that would require Jesus' forgiveness or would even put Jesus in the position to actually forgive him. Right? I mean, it's one thing for Jim to steal a grill from Lowe's 
and for me to forgive him. It's another thing for Lowe's to forgive him or for him to pay Lowe's back. Right? Somebody who's not been sinned against can forgive somebody for perhaps the animosity that they feel to them or perhaps if it's in a group and somebody's broken trust, they can gradually forgive them. But forgiveness is only extended ultimately from the person who was wronged. And notice that Jesus didn't say, I forgive you for stealing my grill. I forgive you for breaking into my roof. I forgive you for destroying my property. He said, I forgive you for all of your sins, plural. And so the scribes, being the educated ones, perhaps the sharper ones in the room, recognized this immediately, and Jesus perceived their thoughts, and their thoughts were, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is blaspheming because he's claiming to be God. Only God can forgive all sins of all people because all of our sins ultimately, though they may be against other people as well, ultimately all of our sins, all of the wrong that we do some, to somebody else, to other people, are ultimately against God because God has created people in his image and we're sinning not only against them, but against God's image. And so Jesus is making this startling statement, and everybody in there says, maybe not everybody, but at least the scribes are saying, it's easier to heal this man to forget than, than to forgive all the sins. Truly forgive. And so Jesus says, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins because I am God. Rise and pick up your mat and walk and go home. Now a second question arises from this and we're going to come back to this in a minute. Which of these things is more meaningful for this man? Was it even necessary for Jesus to heal this man? And the short answer is no. The short answer is that Jesus, perceiving this man's needs, recognized that the greater need by far was that his sins would be forgiven more than that his body would be healed. Let me venture into this a little bit right now because this is an issue that permeates Christian culture or so-called Christian culture today. You see, the main point of Jesus' healing wasn't to show how he came to make you a better person, to give you life improvement. Now, this is the reason that a lot of us come to Jesus, right? We say, we want to come to Jesus so that he will make me a better fill-in-the-blank. So that he will make me a better friend, spouse, parent, better at my job, better at something else that I want to do because I hate my job, better at loving my spouse, better at parenting my kids, better at, right? I mean, where do you fill in the blank? Is this why you come to Jesus? Because he wants to 
You want him to make you better. Now Jesus' answer to this man, his initial answer puts things into perspective. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't make us better, and of course he makes us better, but the primary reason, the primary need that this man had was that Jesus would forgive his sins. That was that God would forgive his sins and reconcile the broken relationship that he had with God. Now, there's no evidence to say that this man himself even perceived this need. His friends brought him for healing, physical healing. We don't even know if he wanted to go or not. He didn't seem to fight it, but he probably couldn't fight it too hard. And there he is. Jesus commends their faith, heals him, shows that his greater concern was that their sins would be forgiven. Sometimes we think of God's forgiveness a little bit like a presidential pardon. I mean, God's got the power to do it. Probably somewhat distant, maybe distant. He may know a little bit of my story, but he doesn't really know the details. He signs off on it, and we say, thanks, God. What Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is, is, is hinting at and, and moving to, and this is even what, what Matthew is moving us to in his gospel, the whole of the gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus is not just concerned. Jesus is not just concerned that this man experience some esoteric forgiveness, pardon from God, and then go on about his life. Jesus is concerned that then these people would follow after him and enter into life as one of his disciples. The story immediately following this, where Matthew going down the mountain, is that Matthew, a tax collector, a rich man, a comfortable man, gives up everything to follow Jesus. And it's not just because Jesus was a convincing teacher. It's not just because he was healing people. It was because he was promising to bring ultimate forgiveness for the sins of the people. And he would do it by paying the ultimate price, by bearing the burden that was too much for people to burden, the burden of sins that each of us carries when we are apart from the saving work of Jesus. Now let's turn now to these characters in the story. The suspects, if you will. Some of them commendable, some of them not so much. The friends of this man, the scribes, the crowds, the man himself. Here's where we start, the friends of the man. Now, if there was a cheesy motivational poster... For determination, you know, the ones that everybody hates to see in the office, but still people keep putting them up. <laughs> if, if those existed in the year 8030, then these four men would have been on it. I mean, they came to the building and they couldn't push through the crowds. They look around, they go around to the window, the windows are covered up. They keep going around the building, they see the staircase, they go up the staircase still, there's not a skylight to open up, and so they start ripping away the stuff. 
from this, there's a very practical application. You see, we teach our kids, just like you were taught, and you may teach your kids, it's not polite to push and shove to get to the front of the line. But listen, when you're bringing somebody to Jesus, when you're bringing somebody for the forgiveness of their sins, whether they know it or not, that is a time for determination and to push and shove and fight your way through. I showed up this morning and the Polish hall last week changed the locks and I was fearful that they were going to be messed up and that we weren't going to be able to get in. And sure enough, the lock was locked. And we started going around the building to look for an open window. I called and asked them to come quickly, but we found an open window and we put Olivia through it and she opened the door and we opened the doors. And listen, sometimes in life, God closes a door as a way to indicate that he wants us to do something else. But oftentimes in life, God puts obstacles in our way and they are there for us to overcome and to fight through. And do not take an obstacle or a closed door as an indication that God is saying no. If the door is closed, check the handle. If the handle's locked, sometimes you got to take the door off the hinges or climb through the window. And especially... When somebody's salvation is on the line. I think this is the lesson to learn from the friends of this man. They, caring about this man, did not give up when things got tough. What about the scribes? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, I know. And I am saying that I am God. Now the scribes, perhaps they were a little bit sharper than most. They were also more prone to cynicism and skepticism. Like many of us here. I mean, I, I am prone to this. In fact, at one point I almost tagged our podcast Sermons for Cynics and Skeptics from a Cynic and Skeptic because I hear a lot of arguments that are presented for the case of Christ, the to arguments for the reason for God, arguments for this and that, even presentations of, of what Scripture says. And I sit back there and I say, that's not right. I mean, there's a hole in that argument. Uh, you probably sit there and say, yeah, there's holes in my arguments all the time. But nonetheless, we are all prone to this kind of cynicism and skepticism. But I want you to notice how dangerous cynicism and skepticism can be in our life. Because there is no indication that these scribes sitting in this room had any change of heart after Jesus proved that he had power to forgive sins. In fact, the, the scribes kind of get melded in with the rest of the crowd in the story, and the crowds, the crowds are shown as getting it partly right. Right? It says that seeing this, they were fearful and they glorified God. And then they said, who had given such authority to men. You see the crowds, including these scribes, amazed. This must be God at work. Glorifying God. Saying, how powerful is God, but still not willing to recognize that Jesus was 
who he was claiming to be. This is great, God, but Jesus must be a little bit mistaken because look at how powerful you have made this man. See, when we are sitting in the seat of skeptics, cynics, scoffers, oftentimes we don't recognize truth when it's right in front of us. Oftentimes we we guard ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for us to guard the truth of God. The Bereans famously, when Paul goes to teach there, tested Paul's words against the truth of the Scriptures. Rightly so. We should do that. However, oftentimes we sit in the seat of cynics and skeptics and we're unwilling to listen to truth when it's put right before us. But that's not the worst of it. You want to know the worst of the crowds and the, the, uh, the scribes? I think completely unintentionally. The scribes and the crowds... <coughs> ultimately were the ones keeping the one who was coming to Jesus away from him. I mean, they were oblivious to the man who was being brought to Jesus. They were pushing and shoving, trying to get an ear in, and they had no idea of who was behind them. You know, we live a long way from uh, family and friends, and so once a year at least we have to fly back and we take all the kids. And one of the things that I am intent on teaching our kids in the airport is that you don't just stop in the middle of the walkway because it's a busy way and you'll get run over. Right? You ever been behind somebody or they just stop right there? They don't go off to the side. They're oblivious to anybody else around them. How many times are we oblivious to the other people around us who are trying to get into Jesus? It wasn't. It wasn't the people who were just far away and didn't care about Jesus who were keeping these people from Jesus, this person from Jesus. It was the people in the room. Now, I mean, there are a lot of ways that we keep people away from Jesus. I mean, I could list out a few. One of the ways that we keep churches have historically and awfully kept people away from Jesus is by getting into wars over what style of music, what instruments to play in the worship service, how, how we needed to do snacks, or how the table in the back needs to be set up, or whatever it is. And oftentimes we keep people away from Jesus by our preferences instead of biblical principles. Now, no, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was very careful to say, look, I didn't come to do away with one dot or cross of a T, dot of an I, cross of a T of the law. Don't undermine Jesus' ministry by saying, well, Jesus isn't really concerned about that law. Worry about that later. Jesus said, no, I came to fulfill the law. The law is right and good. In fact, when we do away with parts of the law, we're actually keeping people away from Jesus oftentimes. But Jesus didn't come saying, you need to do better in order to come into this room. Jesus came saying, I came to live better for you so that you could come into the room. Jesus said, I'm the one who lives right so that you can come in the room. Don't think, don't act 
This is a place where the church gets in the most trouble. We, we say, you have to get your act together before you come into the room. How many times has somebody been turned away from the church because they think, I'm not, I'm not living right. I'm not good enough. But Jesus says, come to me. I will give you healing and transform your life. The last person I want us to consider is this man himself. I mean, we're left wondering what this man made of the whole thing. We don't learn anything that he said or did in the whole thing other than he got up and walked out. We do know that he had some committed friends which would have gone a long way in that culture. still goes a long way. I mean, many of us want to be independent. We want to have healing. We want to say, I can do it. But isn't life so much more interesting when we have friends to do it with? Isn't it so much more fulfilling when we have people who will surround us, people who care about us and love us, whether we're easy to love or difficult to love, whether we can give as much in return to their generosity as they give to us? I mean, let's not miss the simple application in this whole thing And that is these men and their love for the man who was paralyzed. God oftentimes calls us to invest significant amounts of time and energy and attention to care for aging parents or a relative with special needs or or a single mother or a sick spouse or somebody who's mentally ill, especially children, young children. We are called to care for these people. And did you notice what Jesus commends? He doesn't commend the faith of the paralytic who came in there. He doesn't commend the faith of those sitting there listening to his teaching. He commends the faith of the men who brought the paralytic to him. They didn't even express faith in Jesus' ability to forgive sins. They just knew Jesus had power. And so they brought it, brought him out of their love. Are we bringing people to Jesus like this in amazing generosity? Whether they're our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers, whoever they are, are we bringing them to Jesus when we're finding doors closed? Are we checking the knob when we're finding barriers? Are we breaking through the roof or taking the door off the hinges? I mean, did this man... let Let me just close with this. When Jesus died for our sins, when he carried the cross to the mount where he was to be crucified, he was carrying you on a mat because you couldn't walk in the brokenness of your sin. He was lifting the weight that it took four men to lift the weight of one person, but he carried it for all of those in all of creation who had trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. Whether they lived before Jesus and were trusting in a future Messiah, whether they lived in the time of Jesus like these people did, or whether they live now looking back on the forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished, Jesus has carried the weight of your inability, your disability, all of our disability, 
when he carried that burden to the cross. He wasn't overwhelmed just by the physical weight of the cross. He was overwhelmed by the mental and emotional and physical burden of all of your sins, and you know what it's like to carry a sin even when you've sinned against another person and you carry it in secrecy, you carry it for a time because the other person isn't willing to forgive you, you carry the guilt of it, you carry the shame of it, you carry the weight of it because no one can actually pay off the debt. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus has carried that weight for you so that you don't have to carry it. Forgiving debts is not cheap. But when Jesus takes off that debt from us, the weight of that debt, we are free to run. We are freed to mount up like wings on eagles in a way that produces amazing joy. I was reminded of the the scene in the movie, The Chariots of Fire, that depicts the the Scottish runner who was also a Christian, became later a Christian pastor, who said when he was challenged about his running and getting in the way of his ministry, his response was, listen, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When our sins are lifted from our person, when we run without the weight of those sins, we can run in a way that we feel God's pleasure. We can live all the life in a way that we feel God's pleasure. This is the hope that God extends to us. Don't reject it. Accept it. And feel God's pleasure. This is the power of Jesus who was God. Who is God. Who will forever be God. Who has carried the weight of your sins so that you don't have to. And reconciled your relationship to God forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this forgiveness is too good to be true. It is the thing that only you as God could work. Will you tear away the obstacles for our faith as if breaking through the roof and remind us of the price you paid for our debts and that you even pay for the repairs that are needed. Thank you for valuing human life far greater than physical things, whether they be pigs or roofing or whatever they may be. Help us to do the same and to do whatever it takes to bring people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.